0: Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 41, Leviticus chapters 26 and 27. We are very near to the end of uh, our study in Leviticus. As a matter of fact, this week and next week we'll do it. And as we finish up Leviticus 26 tonight, let me begin. By recalling for you that unlike all of the earlier chapters of Leviticus, where the laws and the ordinance were established, chapter 26 says, Here's what will happen now if you obey all those laws and commands, and here's what will happen if you don't obey all those laws and commands. This is the chapter that outlines the blessings and the curses are in our more modern lingo, rewards and punishments. Now, it's, it's structured very much like our nation currently structures our system of civil and criminal laws. Okay, first, when a new law is made, the law, the nature of the law, the do's and the don'ts of it, are carefully detailed. After that, then, what happens when one disobeys that law is stated. The penalties, punishments, be it jail time, fines, whatever it is. Of course, the one thing you're never going to find in our criminal law system are the blessings, are you? The only two possibilities in our modern system of criminal jurisprudence are A, something bad happens to you when you break the law. B, nothing bad happens to you if you don't. That's it. Now, even more important, this chapter is going to be speaking in terms of national obedience, group, congregational obedience and disobedience. It is speaking of Israel as a whole. Now, it's so very key to understand that God shows us that he looks at humanity and deals with humanity in three different spheres of our membership. As individuals, a membership of one, if you would, as a family or a community, and as a nation. And when we're reading the Torah, or anywhere else in the Bible for that matter, we must determine in which of those three spheres of membership any particular scripture is operating. For instance, our salvation in Yeshua is what? Individual. Our eternal future, our present relationship with Jehovah, is determined on a person-by-person basis, not by what our family or our community does or what our nation decides. Our parents' faith does not ensure our salvation, and thank you God, neither does their heathenism exclude us from salvation. We can live in a Muslim-dominated nation, under a Muslim government, in a Muslim family. But it is our individual faith in Messiah that determines our personal relationship with the Lord. On the other hand, what happened with Israel as a nation on so many occasions was primarily due to the actions of their leadership. They're kings who represent their nation. A a, a nation is really nothing but a confederation of individuals. But a nation, by definition, acts in a collective manner, and thus has leaders who represent that collective. The leaders may not be the leaders many in that nation prefer, but they are the leaders nonetheless. For instance, the actions of kings David and Solomon, who were by no means perfect, brought tremendous blessings upon Israel as a nation. The Lord saw that their hearts were towards him. They sought to serve God. And in balance, they believed God. What happened after them, when King Jeroboam King took over and started worshipping other gods... And when he led his people astray, it all eventually led to chaos and civil war and the splitting of Israel into two kingdoms, one of which was conquered by the Assyrians and led to the dispersion of those ten Israelite tribes that occupied that kingdom and the loss of their Hebrew identities, at least until very recently. In addition, we also find instances in the Scripture where individual tribes or families suffered long-term curses for disobedience. The descendants of Ham being one broad example and the descendants of Dan being another. The descendants of Reuben losing their right to be the leaders of Israel is another case of disobedience to God. And I can talk about scores of other examples. Now, conversely, we'll find families... That received long term blessings for their obedience to Jehovah, the descendants of Shem, the descendants of the line of promise from Abraham, Judah to some degree, others. So the important God principle is that there are certain blessings and curses that apply to individuals, others that apply to one's family or a community, and still others that apply to one's nation as a whole. Naturally, these three spheres of membership are somewhat intertwined. If a large number of individuals follow the Lord, the probability is that their family will also be following the Lord. And if a large number of individuals and their families follow the Lord, then the probability is that the community and then hopefully the nation will also. Unfortunately, that principle works in reverse as well. Therefore, we'll find that redemption also operates in a similar fashion. Yeshua redeemed us individual by individual when he came that first time. Now listen to me very carefully about this. Upon Israel being reestablished as a nation, as has now occurred, the nations of the world as an entity will be judged or redeemed based on a single attribute. That nation's treatment of Israel. That is going to be the basis of national judgment around this world. Let me say that again. I'm speaking of national redemption, not the redemption of individuals, is based on how any particular nation deals with Israel. This is taken from a very straightforward teaching. In Joel, you'll find it in Obadiah, in Amos, in Revelation, among other places. Now, of course, a nation whose individual citizens don't trust the Lord are unlikely to have leaders who trust in him. And therefore the nation will see no special value in Israel. And the nation who sees no special value in Israel will make decisions that are counter to God's instructions regarding his set-apart nation consisting of the people and the land. And by the way, because the people and the leaders of a nation adopt some mixture of trusting the God of Israel, with the tolerance of other gods, whether those other gods be false belief that any god is the god, or that geopolitical realities matter as much, if not more, than God's laws and commands, those nations are not going to be cut any slack, just because Jehovah is somewhere in that mix. That nation... Would do those terrible, uh, that that a nation would do those terrible things against Israel simultaneously with calling on the name of the Lord brings that nation to judgment just as surely as if they worshiped only Baal. I tell you these things because they are the context behind Leviticus 26. And because we are in the process of being disciplined, as I speak, as a nation. For the exact thing that Joel, Obadiah, Amos, and others warned us against. Forcing the dividing up of the land of Israel. Saying that we're doing that dividing in the name of world peace is precisely equivalent to worshiping Baal and Jehovah at the same time. It's double-minded, it's double-talk, and it lacks faith. I I also tell you this, because you're not very likely to hear it in very many churches or synagogues. But guess what? It's now your responsibility to go and tell them. Let's reread the last portion of Leviticus 26 to get our bearings for tonight's lesson. We're going to read from Leviticus 26, verse 32 to the end. That will be page 142, if you have the complete Jewish Bible. I will desolate the land... So that your enemies living in it will be astounded by it. You I will disperse among the nations, and I will draw out the sword and pursuit after you. Your land will become a desolation, your city is a wasteland. Then at last the hand the land will be paid back its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate and you're in the hands of your enemies, the land will rest, and be repaid its Shabbats. Yes, as long as it lies desolate, it will have rest. The rest it didn't have during your Shabbats, when you lived there. As those of you who are left all fill their hearts with anxiety in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf will frighten them. So that they'll flee as one flees from the sword and fall when no one's pursuing. Yes, with no one pursuing, they'll stumble over each other as if fling fleeing from the sword. You have no power to stand before your enemies. And among the nations you will perish. The land of your enemies will devour you. Those of you who remain will pine away in the land of your enemies from guilt over your misdeeds and those of your ancestors. Then they will confess their misdeeds and those of their ancestors which they committed against me in their rebellion. They will admit that they went against me. At that time I will be going against them bring them into the lands of their enemies. But if their uncircumcised hearts will grow humble, and they are paid the punishments for their misdeeds, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, also my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember the land. For the land will lie abandoned without them, and it will be paid its Shabbat's while it lies desolate without them. And they will be paid the punishment for their misdeeds, because they rejected my rulings, they loathe my regulations. Yet in spite of all that, I will not reject them when they are in the lands of their enemies, nor will I loathe them to the point of utterly destroying them, and thus break my covenant with them. Because I am Adonai their God. Rather, for their sakes, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt with the nations watching, so that I might be their God. I'm Adonai. These are the laws, rulings, and teachings that Adonai himself gave to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai through Moses. You know, it fascinates and perplexes me how readily some members of the church recognize and can recite the various disciplines and judgments of God upon Israel over their long history, and then turn right around and refuse to see the disciplines that have and currently are falling upon us as individuals and families, as a community of believers. And as a nation. I mean, we even see quote after quote from the world of Islam noting how Israel's woes, and lately the USA's weather and economic and war calamities, are divine in their source. Okay. And here in verse thirty two we see that exact phenomenon prophesied. It explains that even Israel's enemies will understand that the desolation of the land and the apostasy of the Hebrew people has come as a divine punishment by their own God, with the implication that Israel won't think so at all. Then in verse 34, the subject of the Sabbath is brought up again. Very interesting. Okay, It was only at, in the previous chapter... That God set down the laws for the Sabbath years, that cycle of seven years, with the first six being regular years, the seventh year of the Sabbath year, and then the cycle of 50 years, with there being seven cycles of seven years, and the following year being Jubilee itself, a most special Sabbath year. So this verse anticipates that Israel will not obey the law. Of the Sabbath years. Okay. That Israel won't obey the laws of the Jubilee. And every 50 years give the land what amounts to two consecutive years of Sabbath rest. And this stubborn refusal to observe the Sabbaths and the Jubilee is part and parcel with the reason Jehovah will lay his heavy hand of discipline on his people. At least... Partly, it was for the benefit of the land itself. Now, the explicit explanation here is that the reason the land will go desolate and go unused, because now Israel's been sent away into exile, is to make up for all those Sabbaths that were missed. In other words, what seems as though It's it's God's curse upon the land, making it desolate, is in fact a blessing upon the land. It is in a certain way a means of reinvigorating the land. Readying it for what? For his people to come back and use it. The Hebrew word used in the phrase at the end of verse 34 where it says, and the land shall be repaid, its Sabbath, is hirsa. It comes from a root word that means to expiate or to make up for something. Now, I've said on several occasions that God's laws don't come and go. Okay, They're not like men's laws right, that change with the times or the whims of voters or legislators. Rather, God's laws are the fabric of the universe. When Jehovah made the Sabbath year and the Jubilee laws, it was because the rules concerning them are how the universe operates. Example, we have civil laws that say Certain workers, when they're operating in high places, must wear safety harnesses. Why? Because they can fall and be seriously injured, even die, if they don't obey this law, this regulation. Now, let me ask you a question. Happen, what would what meaning would this law have if gravity didn't exist? What if, because gravity didn't exist... Planet, of, planet Earth's habit just kind of bobbed around like we see the astronauts on the space station doing. To an astronaut living in outer space, the term falling essentially has no meaning, does it? Our law about safety belts and safety harnesses for workers working in high places is responding to another and more powerful law that the Lord God has established the law of gravity a law that's part of the fabric of the universe a law no man can break and we can't abolish it when the Lord establishes a law it works just like gravity even if we can't see it it's there and it affects most aspects of our lives and one way or another it's going to be accounted for. To ignore the law of gravity is to invite death. When God ordained the Sabbath years for the benefit of the land, it was because the land needed those Sabbath years. If a man who works in a high place wears his safety belt, then he can work within the dangers of gravity. And gravity won't get the best of him. If he doesn't, The odds are pretty good that it eventually will. If the land gets its Sabbaths, then it operates like it's been designed. And it gives up much abundance for the people. If the land does not get its Sabbaths, it gets tired. The land needs exactly as many Sabbaths as God ordained for it to have. Not one more, not one less. And the Lord is going to make sure that it gets its Sabbaths. One way or another. That's the nature of the God principle that's being set forth in Leviticus 26. So, did the consequence of ignoring God's laws ever finally catch up to the nation of Israel? You bet it did. And in Ezekiel 4, 4-6, through around 9 centuries following, the giving to Moses of the Torah... God suddenly instructs Ezekiel to lay on his left side for 390 days. One day for every year of the iniquity of Ephraim, Israel. Then off to his right side for 40 more days. One day for each year of the iniquity of Judah. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom, the two houses of Israel. This is a total of 430 days, representing years, as a sign to Israel of their coming punishment. At this point, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has already carried away the first three installments of exiles, including Daniel, by the way, to Babylon, the first occurring in the year 606. By the year 588, the third and last of the people of Israel were carried away to Babylon. The temple was destroyed and then the land was lying mostly desolate. In this account of Second Chronicles 36.21 it makes this amazing statement that the purpose of the Ephraim Israel northern kingdom and then Judah southern kingdom being exiled was and I quote from that verse to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land has enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept the Sabbath to to fulfill threescore and ten seventy years. The remarkable point here is that 430 years contains 70 Sabbath years. The land, by God's audit, had been deprived of precisely 70 Sabbath years. Because the Israelites had just blown off those laws concerning the required Sabbath years. So now it was time for the land to be caught up, to be repaid at Sabbaths. It was inevitable that this would have to happen because the Sabbath years needed by the land of Israel, it's a law of the universe, it's like gravity. Every jot and stroke of God's word was fulfilled in their 70 bitter years of exile. The land was due 70 years of rest. It got 70 years of rest. But the Israelites paid very dearly for every one of those years they had skipped. And we might postpone the consequences for violating God's laws for a time, but it's going to catch up with us. Because it's simply built into the way the universe operates. Now what follows next, in Leviticus 26, is a description of the exiles that the Israelites will suffer over the centuries. And basically, here is the condition of the people of Israel during those times. It says, first, they'll be faint of heart. The word used here for faintness is in Hebrew, morech. And it literally means to be soft. Okay, The same word is used in Deuteronomy to describe men who weren't fit for military service. They were cowards. Okay, What an indictment. It says that the Israelites will be hauled off to other lands. They'll roll over and do whatever they're told to do because they have no inner fortitude. To do anything else. Why don't they have any inner strength? Because Jehovah took the courage that at one time it existed in their hearts and replaced it with a submissive attitude of fear as a punishment for their disobedience. Two, they'll stumble over each other, it says, as if somebody's chasing them. The implication being that nobody actually is chasing them. The idea is one of chaos, paranoia, disorganization. One pictures that terrible day not long ago in Iraq when someone screamed bomb among a crowd of people who were marching across a bridge. Remember that? But in truth, there was no bomb. People began pushing and shoving and stumbling over one another. The crush of humanity was so severe that the concrete and steel guardrails fell apart. Hundreds of people tumbled into the Euphrates, 60 feet below. Still others suffocated from the crush, and more yet were literally trampled to death. When it was all over, almost 700 people had perished. But it turns out, there was never any danger. It was all imagined. That's the sense of this passage. Now it says, point three, Israel won't be able to stand up and attack. They'll back down. Always backing down a little more to their enemies. The history of Israel in exile is this inexplicable predisposition to appease rather than to fight. It is a belief that they have no hope, so why bother? It's a belief that they haven't the ability to fight back and win. And fourth, as a result of the first three attributes, it says, they're going to perish in whatever country they wind up in. You know, it's one thing to die in your own bed at home. Some people, as they feel death is near, long to go back to the area where they were born and raised. The familiarity brings a kind of comfort. But when you're in a foreign place where you inherently don't belong, and the natural people of that place also feel you don't belong there, it's a whole other matter. That, perhaps, is one of the greatest fears, I think, of a soldier, to die in a foreign land that's the exact threat that God's putting before his people that they'll die in a foreign land that their last moments won't be peaceful but there'll be agitation and anxiety fifth, for those who will not die those who, will, uh, who do not die rather in, in foreign places that they'll find themselves being heartsick the English sense of this phrase is a condition of sadness sadness But that's not really it. The the Hebrew word used here, yimachu, literally means melt away. We're going to hear this same word used in Zechariah and Ezekiel of God's people's eyes melting, it says, in their sockets. And wasting away because of transgression. In both cases, The idea is not of a literal physical melting. Some have tried to depict Ezekiel especially as depicting a nuclear bomb attack. It's a Hebrew idiom. It means to have a deep and disturbing sense of dread that just won't go away. Now, sixth, in addition to the general sense of doom and dread that they'll have, they'll also be lamenting the iniquities of their fathers. Now, maybe this gives the best illustration of the primary effect of a national judgment, which is what's being discussed here. They'll come to the conclusion that they are suffering over the collective sins of previous generations, as well as the collective sins of their own generation. Of course, the question is, on their minds, how does one ever escape from such a curse of God? Seventh, Then in this odd way, all of these dark and gloomy feelings and circumstances give way to the very thing that answers the question I just posed. How does one ever escape from this condition? And the answer is given in verse 40. They shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers. Is that not exactly what we're exhorted to do in the New Testament? To confess. And of course to repent, which is what's implied by this verse. And just what is it there to confess? That they and those before them, that is, those of their nation, Israel, were collectively hostile to the God of Israel. They trespassed against his holiness. Again... Not approaching this as single individuals, but as a collective of individuals, a nation. The whole principle being demonstrated here is that when a national judgment is occurring, every last person in that nation bears the burden. It doesn't matter that you as an individual didn't agree with the things your nation or its leaders did in their hostility to God. This is demonstrated time and time again with the prophets who were righteous before the Lord, who refused to participate in the iniquities of their nation, but who suffered right along with all those who were not righteous. In a national judgment, the righteous are fully expected by God to confess the sins of that nation to which they're attached, just as though... It was us who directly committed those offenses, even if we weren't born yet. And one of the most ironic quirks, I think, of faith history, at least it seems so to me, we today have a church who honestly feels that all that really matters on a spiritual level is the individual. That all of God's redemptive grace and dreadful wrath is about individuals. Conversely, we have a Judaism today that honestly feels that all that really matters on a spiritual level is the nation as a whole. That all of God's redemptive grace and dreadful wrath is about the national collective. And both are wrong. And I hope you're beginning to see that. That is why it seems so strange to the average modern Gentile believer to pray for forgiveness for things he didn't do or on behalf of his nation. To actually take personal responsibility for seeking the Lord for forgiveness for the sinful acts of his nation. Not by praying, Oh God, forgive what those other people did. Rather, Oh God, forgive me. Because I'm part of the nation that did these things against you. I mean, do you see the difference in that? And it seems equally strange to religious Jews to pray for redemption for an individual. For what good is it that one person is redeemed if the whole nation perishes? After all, If the whole nation is redeemed, then by definition every person in that nation is redeemed. That's their logic. Eight. now that Israel recognizes its hostility towards God and confesses it, then, while in the midst of their exile, their hearts will become humble, it says. In other words, they finally reach the bottom of that pit. They've run out of excuses. They realize they have utterly no hope. They cannot extricate themselves from their self made predicament. Once they've been emptied of their pride, then will Yehovah remember his covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and even more. It says the Lord will remember the land. That he will remember that long ago he made Israel the permanent leaseholders of the land of Canaan. You'll remember that. Now we come to the part we should repent over. A part that most of us at one time rejected and hopefully do so no longer. A part that a large segment of our community, the community of believer, believers, still harbors. Yehoveh says to the nation of Israel in verse 44, Leviticus 26.44 Yet in spite of all this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them. Nor will I abhor them and destroy them, breaking my covenant with them because I'm the Lord their God. Rather, for the sake of the covenants he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... Yehovah will have mercy and the covenants he made with Israel will remain intact. Jehovah did not reject Israel. He never sent them away permanently into exile nor to ever be destroyed. Moreover, he certainly didn't replace them. Exile was a form of national discipline, not a form of national destruction. Its purpose was to bring Israel to a place of confession and then a place of repentance so that they would avoid eternal judgment, eternal destruction. And instead, they would eventually even be restored to their own land. You know, when we're disciplined and punished by the Lord as individuals, its purpose is to guide us back to the straight path so as to avoid judgment When we're disciplined as a nation, it's to guide us back nationally to the straight path so as to avoid destruction. But notice the steps towards this that I've covered tonight. Until we recognize that all these things swirling around us that have befallen us are at God's hand. Until we recognize our personal part in the national hostility we've demonstrated towards Him and our national disobedience, and until we confess it and repent of it and are humbled before Him, then we're going to stay under that hand of discipline either until we do repent or, heaven forbid, until the day of the Lord comes when He permanently judges the world. The horrors that we read of in Revelation aren't about discipline. Hear me. This is not discipline. The time for discipline is over in Revelation. Now comes the judgment for those who've refused the discipline. By the way, the original setting and context for most of those unimaginable events of Revelation that have become so popular in the modern evangelical church with its insistence that the Old Testament is irrelevant or abolished, are contained in the covenant verses of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Let's move on to Leviticus chapter 27, the final chapter of Leviticus. It's interesting that the final few matters talked about in the book of Leviticus revolve around the funding of the sanctuary. Now, from a biblical perspective, the operation of the sanctuary, what at this point in Israel's history was that portable tent, the the wilderness tabernacle, but later would become a fixed building, grand fixed building, the temple, could be funded from a number of sources. And, and this chapter deals with the several major categories of sanctuary funding pledges of silver and animals, consecration of a real property like houses and land, giving up of firstborn animals and first fruits of crops, and donation of property and tithing. Now, what we find as we read this chapter is that in general. The goal for it was for the priesthood who operated the sanctuary to obtain silver, so as to purchase whatever was needed for maintenance and operation. Okay. Therefore we will see a schedule of relative values drawn up in which various pledges from worshipers of land and animals, even of people could be exchanged for silver. Okay. That is the uh, That is this idea was that a vow would be made to give thus and so as an offering to the sanctuary, and then the giver would turn around and redeem. He'd buy back whatever it was he'd given. How much would it cost to redeem those things? What was the price of redemption? What was the fair value of those items when first given and then redeemed, that's what this chapter deals with. So let me be clear. The rules and regulations we're going to read in chapter 27 are constructed in such a way as to make it the norm that most of what the sanctuary receives for its operation was silver, something that was easier to exchange rather than animals and field crops. Now before we read chapter 27, let me point out a couple of things. First, doesn't this general method of giving our wealth to the sanctuary sound eerily familiar to us? Okay. That when where we worship, synagogue, church, is typically funded in that exact manner? Okay. Churches and synagogues tend to lump all the giving to the institution together and call it tithes and offerings. But Leviticus breaks it down. It it breaks down the way the institution is funded into more detailed categories, among which tithing is only one. Second, just so you'll be thinking about it as we read chapter 27 next week, recognize that the subject of tithing per se isn't discussed with any detail in the New Testament. It's only lightly alluded to. And the number of times the word tithe is even used in the New Testament, you can count on one hand. Even more when it is used, except for one time, it's in the context of making a point about a Torah principle. Or, it's speaking about the merit of one of the patriarchs. The point is, absolutely no command is is directly given in the New Testament to tithe anything. And whatever allusion is made in the context of a quote from an Old Testament passage is what you'll find referred to in the New Testament. And many believers have taken this lack of a direct New Testament commandment to mean that Christians have no requirement to tithe and thus support the work of the church. Of course, I can't think of any churches that would subscribe to that notion. All right. Now, I don't want to detour and I don't want to discuss tithing in depth, but just let me throw out a couple of thoughts for you to ponder. And I'll begin by giving you the bottom line tithing and giving to, the, to support the institution was assumed by the New Testament in other words the New Testament was not to be taken as some do that if Jesus didn't directly mouth the command we don't have to do it the Torah that he followed and told others in Matthew 5 to do likewise hadn't been abolished and you. Yeshua said that every jot and stroke remained intact until when? Until heaven and earth disappeared. The commands of God had already been established to teach the principles of tithing and scores of other principles as well had been taught to the disciples of the God of Israel. The New Testament is not a portion of the Bible in which everything from the previous portion, the laws and the prophets, was supposed to be repeated in order to validate it. It's one of the more curious and frankly revealing traditions of the church to teach that the requirement to tithe is directly from that part of the Bible that it otherwise counts as obsolete and downright negative. As I reminisced over the many sermons I've heard on the subject of giving, It's in in the rare case that a New Testament passage is quoted to validate tithing. It's invariably from the book of Luke, chapter 11, verse 42, which says this. But woe to you Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. And the thought is that while tithing is, of course, still in effect, that justice and the love of God should be the reason for the tithe. That it certainly shouldn't be done only according to commands and laws, legalistically, right? Okay. Well, let's take a look at, an, at the other gospel that employs this same quote, synoptically, in the book of Matthew, because this verse is usually avoided, talking about tithing. Matthew twenty three twenty three. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law. Justice and mercy, faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. A couple of important words there. Here we have Yeshua stating straight out that not only is tithing expressly a provision of the law, but also justice and mercy and faithfulness are the weightier provisions of what? The law. And that these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. In other words, we have a complete validation of the law. You should do these things. You should also do these other things. Referring to the ordinances of the law. So now you see why this isn't a particularly popular verse. And then from here forward in most sermons, all teaching on tithing usually now comes from the Old Testament. Now this is but one good example of what I have been teaching you over our years together. That it is assumed that the New Testament reader already has a good background in these fundamental matters covered by the law. After all, the Torah was 1,300 years old by the time Yeshua arrived on the scene. It was still the basis for the lifestyle of the Jewish people. Jesus doesn't explain tithing because there's no need to explain it. It was just common knowledge. He also didn't command tithing because there was no need. Its requirement was long established and accepted. Every Jew knew what tithing meant and understood the many forms of giving beyond tithing and how the giving system operated and what its purpose was, what was expected of them as God's people. And by the way, Jesus also doesn't explain that it's necessary for us to continue to breathe in and out. All right since he's come. All right. Nor does he explain what the term the law means. Everybody knew what it meant. It meant the Torah. When I speak to you and use the term the Bible, I don't have to pause and explain it every week what a Bible is. I assume that since you're here, you probably have some idea. Next week we're going to study Leviticus 27 and we will complete our study of the book of the priests of Israel.